You're listening to audio from Restoration Church. If you enjoyed the message and would like to get connected to our church, follow us on social media at Restoration Cambridge or at our website, restoration-church.ca. Send us a message and we would love to hear from you. Uh, All of us have a fear in one way or another. No one wants me to speak right now, so this is, this is going to be great. Um, we all have a fear in one way or another of losing control. Ironically, when it comes to kids especially, a fear of losing control. Not, not your kids losing control, but having to, losing control of the direction and the life of your, your kids. And I think in, in, in many ways... Christian circles have the hardest time with that. You know, I, I've met many parents, including where, where I was a youth leader for years, and I never understood parents that like, man, they, they hold their kids so tight, right? They, they don't want them to experience anything in life. They want them to stay home and be safe and, and be good. I never understood that until I had, now my own kids are growing up in this world, and I feel the same thing. You know, my kids just, just stay home with mom and dad, be safe, be good. You're never going to... The threat of the world sometimes is too much. The fear of losing control. You know, this became really obvious to me uh, just the other day. Claire, my oldest, she asked me, Dad, am, am I, am I going to get married? Out of the blue. And of course, my response was, why would you want to get married? You stay home with mom and dad. Why would you ever want to get married? What a crazy, ridiculous idea. I never have to give you away, you know? What, a, what an amazing idea. That may not always be the case, but now that they're young, you know, the, the fear of losing control. And I was like, why, why, why would you want to get married? And she's like... Well, Dad, what if, what, if, what if I've fallen in love? Which really puts the red flags up. Like, to whom have you fallen in love with? And does he even have a job? Like, can he support you? When I hear a boy's name at school, oh, forget it. Because, by the way, Nikki and I met in kindergarten. So this is real. <laughs> this is real. Nikki's mom and dad are here. They heard about Aaron in kindergarten. That they had to let her go. <laughs> so, well, what if I've fallen in love? And I'm like, to whom have you fallen in love with? And she had a big smile. She put a big smile on her face. And her, you know what her answer was? Pizza. (laughs) Perfect answer. That is a great, I hope that's always your answer. You are allowed to be in love with pizza. (laughs) But the fear of losing control of your kids, man, I feel it every year more and more and more. Losing control of, of, you know, the things that that, that have been entrusted to you that you could kind of steer. But now that, you know, as not just in kids, but as life gets more complicated, that, that 
threat of losing control of your life and your family's life becomes more and more increased. And we talk a lot about in Christian circles, you know, the threat of culture. And by the way, culture is just, we often in Christian circles use the word culture in a, always in a negative sense. But culture is neither positive nor negative. Culture is just the air we breathe. It's the practices that we have, the, 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 the traditions that we have, the language we speak. All of those things make up our culture. There's nothing good or bad, per se, about a culture. It's just the air that we breathe that we've all grown up in. Every church has a culture, as the world has a culture. But there seems to be this sense, especially in Christian circles, of a threat of the prevailing culture that exists. That's why there's so much emphasis on, and you've probably heard these words before when it comes in Christian circles, especially being counter-cultural. Right? Have you heard that before? Maybe it was a youth uh, retreat theme, being counter-cultural. <laughs> you know, we, we and, and I get that, and I, because we have an identity as Christians, and then, then we're in the world in other spaces, maybe that's not the church, in, 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 and we live in an alternative culture marked by certain things. Here's what I kind of want to challenge as we begin today in, in this passage, as we look through it. Here's what I want to challenge, and this isn't really going to be the sense, but, or everything that we look at. I would challenge the notion that as Christians we are merely to be countercultural. Like we look at the world and we say, okay, here's what the world does. As long as we do the opposite, as long as we just be different than what the world does, that's Christianity. It's to be countercultural. And I think if that becomes our sole purpose in how we live and interact in the world, I think it's very misguided. Because in our passage, Paul writes to people who felt threatened by their world. They felt threatened. There's a fear of losing control, losing their heritage, their identity. But in that fear, they lost the gospel. I would say this. Our call as Christians in the world, it's not to be culturally savvy, like we're going to learn everything we can about the world and just try to appeal to everything. We're... We talk about that a lot. We're not, we're not called to be culturally savvy. I would also say this. On the other side, we're not, all, we're not called to be culturally threatened either. Our call as Christians is to take a look at the gospel. What is the, it's not just to be different from the world. It's what is the gospel? And that's the culture that we live. Galatians 2 is where we're going to be. Galatians 2, 1 to 10. So if you got a Bible, which by, which, by the way, there is scripture journals at the back. If you don't have a scripture journal and want to take notes, write it up, write up on it, go back to that table and take a scripture journal. we got a whole bunch more in the mail, so just feel free to do that right now. Go to the back, get a scripture journal. If you don't have one, feel free. Two people are doing it. Awesome. Okay, take one if you don't have one. They're yours. Galatians 2 is where we're going to be. We're in a series called Layers as we uncover what is the gospel. Peeling back layers of cultural assumption and religious experience to get to the very heart of like, what does it mean? What makes the good news the good news? 
It says this in Galatians 2, 1 to 10. This is a man named Paul, and I'll get here in a second. I'll talk about context in a second. Then after 14 years, so he's continuing a discussion or argument that he had in the previous, which, by the way, all of our messages you can find on YouTube or Spotify or other podcast sites, Restoration Church, sermons, you'll find them there. If you want to listen to uh, the previous two messages in this series, you can do that. Paul is continuing an argument here in chapter 2 that I think has a lot of practical ramifications for us. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas taking Titus along with me. Okay? Takes two people, Barnabas, Titus. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, so the leaders, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. I can explain that in a second. That's a very important verse. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us back into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. It doesn't really matter if they were influential or not. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential, they added nothing to me. Basically, he's saying they added nothing to the gospel. The gospel I was preaching was true, and it was consistent with what they were preaching as well. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, or basically to the non-Jewish world, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for, who he, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, that's Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor the very thing I was eager to do. There's a lot of detail going on in this passage, and I'm not, I like, not going to get kind of in the weeds, but there's a really important principle for us in this passage. As we go through this series of, called Layers and Peeling Back Layers of Cultural Assumption, Religious Experience to get to, what is the heart of the gospel, which is a huge part of Christian growth? This man named Paul who writes this letter to a region of churches called Galatia, his whole life was affected by this divine message called the gospel. So much so, he spoke that message when it was spoken to him by Jesus himself, his entire life was changed, and it changed his life so much that he spoke, he continued on in his life and spoke that very message to street corners and in temples, eventually leading to plant churches. Hence why he writes letters to churches. Because of that divine message, he writes this letter. And in this book, that message was under attack. And not only was the message under attack, his position was being questioned. He himself was under attack as if they were saying, he's not to be trusted, he's not being upfront. he's a people-pleasing coward, he's not telling you the truth. And Paul, as he's talking here, you're like, what is all these details? Basically what Paul is doing, continuing on from last week, Paul is giving a defense of that this, there's no ulterior motives going on here. This message that I received is straight from God and I'm giving it to you, intact. There's no ulterior motives. 
I'm not trying to get anything out of this. It's not like I've, I've been coerced by somebody else and I can be trusted. That's basically what he's doing. And he continues on in, the pa- in defense of this passage. And Okay, before I want to get to the part that I really want to get to, first of all, when you look at the passage, first thing, I'm super encouraged. Because as Paul's giving a defense, he's kind of, he's, he's giving commentary of what happened in his life after he was changed by the gospel. And it says after 14 years, he, went, he goes to Jerusalem. I think sometimes when we look at biblical characters, we think it's like, okay, this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, and it happens over, you know, a couple of verses or a couple of chapters, but there's a long period of time between events in Paul's life. Like, there's long-term growth going on here. Because when Paul gets this revelation from God to go to see the leaders in Jerusalem, there's no scheming, but there's such a place of the journey when it comes to our spiritual, spiritual growth We almost elevate guys like Paul to divine level, but they're just human like you and I. That there was struggle, there was times of fatigue, indecision, and doubt, and a lot of time passes between events. And I heard once someone say, Aaron, you can overestimate what you can do in a year, but underestimate what you can do in five years. Because we, we, we often think just in short term. It's like, I've got to, I, was, I was saved, and I've got to be here by this point. And then we get so discouraged that we, we didn't get there. After a very short period of time, you're like, oh man, like I'm, I should be, people should be coming to faith. Even as a church plant, when you first launch Restoration Church, you're like, oh my goodness, it's been a month, and we're not like packing out the house. What is going on here? But spiritual growth in people's lives often takes a long time. The point I'm trying to make is we sometimes look at our lives and we live in a constant state of disappointment because I'm not where I thought I would be after a short time. But guys, God is faithful. And often growth, mostly growth, takes a long time. God is in it for the long time. You know, one of our values as a church is just called neighboring. We use that specifically It's not just called outreach. It's not just called evangelism. We've used the value as neighboring because we like, you know, like the word connotates, we're here for the long time. We're here for, we we live here. This is our home. We're here for the long haul. We're not just going to drop an atom bomb of good timings, good tidings, and then peace out. But like Jesus, incarnate ourselves into people's lives. You know, one of the greatest joys of, of ministry and, 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 and serving in church has been to see lives changed. But I'm telling you, those lives changed, like, the greatest change have happened, has happened in a long time. You know, some of you, it's been a privilege to see your life changed over the last 10, 12, 15 years. And same with me. But if I just got discouraged, it's like, oh man, nothing, nothing's happening in this person's life after a year. I, you would never see what God can do over the long haul. That's not really where I want to go this morning, but I was encouraged by it when I read it. The reason Paul ta- goes to Jerusalem to meet with these leaders, it says in verse 2, it says, I went up because of a revelation and set before them the gospel that I proclaimed amongst the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Now Paul is not saying 
that he didn't have confidence in the gospels. Like, is this what I'm like? Did, was he? Was he like? Was is this really the gospel? Is this the message I'm supposed? Like, am I running in vain? I just need to check and affirm that this is. No, no, that's not what he's saying. He's not talking about an, a wavering confidence in the gospel, but the leaders. Like, are are these leaders in Jerusalem and I? Are we on the same team? He didn't need them to affirm the message. As he says in verse 6, he doesn't care about their esteem. He doesn't care about their influence. But if Paul's going to go plant churches and write letters and didn't have the support of these Jerusalem leaders, a lot of that would have been in vain. At the end, though, they both affirm each other's ministries, same gospel, reaching different cultures. And they saw what God was doing in Paul's life, the grace of God on him. They bless him. They extend the right hand of fellowship. And I love this. It's such an encouragement. Just remember the poor. That's the only encouragement that they give. And I love that. Okay. Here's the big part of the passage. Here's the issue. Why Paul writes this to begin with. Paul took someone with him. Barnabas, no big deal. Heard about Barnabas before. One of the leaders in the church. Paul takes someone with him. His name was Titus. Titus is an important figure in the church. Titus was a Gentile. But more importantly, in the context of this book, Titus was a Gentile who didn't become a Jew after he met with Jesus. He didn't get circumcised. You know, Peter, James, and all of those other Jewish Christian leaders... They can bless Paul's ministry from afar, but here now was one of Paul's converts, Titus, a Christian who had not been circumcised. Now, I know this seems really strange in our present day world. Like when you read the word circumcised ten times in a passage. You have to do it. It's there. You can't ignore it. It's part of the passage. We miss the importance here, though, if we don't understand. Like, this was a huge deal. To us, it might seem unimportant, even strange. But for a millennia, this was the symbol that they were God's chosen people. That was the symbol. Had been commanded by God, it was through the whole ceremony and everything, whenever whenever a baby boy was born, this was the reminder that they were God's chosen people. It's what separated them from the rest of the world. And you might think, like, why circumcision? Well, of course, like, if, if you... It was a reproductive sign to distinguish the people of God in their world, that they were the chosen people of God from one generation to the next generation to the next generation. And this was the reminder. Oh yeah, we're, we're God's chosen. This is, what, this is what distinguishes us from the rest of the world. See, we miss this when we read it. We're like, what's the big deal? This was a, this was a huge deal. That now they, there was someone coming as a leader in the Christian world who they didn't force nor, nor coerce basically to become a Jew. And by assumption, he never did get circumcised. I got a feeling Paul didn't know how they would respond when, he, when, he's, when he's writing this, like, like reflecting on it afterwards. 
I don't know if he really knew how they would respond to this Titus. To not force their hand with something so ingrained in them that wasn't the gospel. Good thing Christians throughout the ages, throughout the ages, we've never had any problems with this, right? Never had any problems with this. Embracing someone who didn't look like us, who didn't practice maybe this everything that we had that wasn't the gospel, that wasn't from God. We've never had any problems with this. To force or coerce someone to do something separate from the gospel. You know what I'm saying here? By the way, that was a joke. If you didn't get it. We've had problems for a millennia with this. You know, hey... Okay, to a Jew, it's circumcision. To, to a Baptist, you better give up your alcohol, right? That's what it was. And again, it's not about whether someone's circumcised or not or whether they drink alcohol or not. The point is, if you're forced into something, that's the point. Now, the leaders of the Jerusalem church didn't have a problem with it. But some did. As it says in the passage, it says, Yet because of false brothers who secretly brought in, they slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so they might bring us into slavery. Apparently this was a big deal. Titus was a problem. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So there's these false brothers that slipped in to spy out our freedom. We call them, you know, if, you, if you read commentaries, they were called Judaizers who basically said, you know, yeah, believe in Jesus. Jesus is the true Messiah. However, you've got to do some things in order to be acceptable to God. And one of those things was to be circumcised. And these were the people that were saying, Paul's not telling you the whole story here. And they had big problems with Titus. And I love Paul says this, we didn't yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved in you. Again, like, why, Paul, are you so adamant here? Is it that big a deal? whether he's circumcised or not? Why is Paul so adamant here? And I think the point is this, and I, not, I think, I know the point is this. It's the very essence of the gospel that's on trial in this passage for that church and how they move forward. And the essence of the, the gospel that's on trial, the question is, what is the defining feature of the gospel? What makes the gospel the gospel. What makes it good news? What is that defining quality that makes the gospel good? And if the answer is not the gracious work of Jesus, and it's something else, then it's not the gospel. Okay? If the, if the defining quality of the gospel is not the gracious work of Jesus, it's not the grace of God, it's not the gospel. And that's what Paul is saying. This is why I'm preserving this for you. Why we did not force him to do something he did not want to do. If the defining feature of this message is a work, a requirement on our part, guys, it's not the gospel. If the defining quality of, Chris, of a Christian is how you vote, how you look, or even a good that we do, then it's based on our work and not God's. It's not the gospel anymore. That's what's at stake in this passage. 
The issue isn't whether someone should be circumcised or not. The issue is the gospel. It's to be a Christian, there is a work that we must do than it isn't the gospel. Here's, here's the burden for us as we go through this passage. And I know you're like, you come to Restoration Church and you've heard about grace before and, you know, we're big on grace, obviously. And you might think, oh, you know what, Aaron, we've got this, we've got this covered, we've got this lick. Well, they were big on grace, they said they were big on grace too. And yet it was a problem. See, we have lots of trouble letting go of works that we believe everyone else should do that's deeply ingrained in our heritage, heritage especially if it's countercultural from the prevailing culture. And maybe it isn't circumcision for us, but like I said, to be a Baptist, you better hide, you better hide that beer in your fridge. Right? Anyone else grow up Baptist? That's what it was. You better hide that thing. That was the mark of Christianity. And again, I'm not saying you all should. Please don't say don't take that way. I don't care. Like that's a and probably some of you probably wise not to. But that's not the point. Is that the mark of Christianity though? That now you're a follower of Jesus. The issue isn't alcohol. The issue is the gospel. Now, I think we can do this even when it comes to families. You know, the gospel is the, the ones who are married and have two kids and have a dog at home. Like, that's what the gospel is. That's salvation. Some of you, no, by the way, no offense. Some of you have, are married, have two kids, and have a dog at home. <laughs> Please don't mistake that I don't care. I mean, I do care. I don't think I'm going to say anything that's going to satisfy. Anyway. <laughs> you know, a big one is, I'll get to this in a second, because I really want to kind of twist a little bit. You know, what kind of school your kids go to? Is that the mark of Christianity? In a lot of churches, it is. Better not send your kids to that public school. I know a church where it is. They would never say that, but by the culture of the church, oh, that's what it is. The issue isn't any of those things. It's the gospel. Okay, here's where I want to poke. Remember on Facebook how annoying that was when they had Facebook pokes? Like, why are you sending me a poke? What even is that? Stop poking me. What is... Do, they don't do that anymore, do they? they don't, Facebook doesn't have a poke? Come on, admit it. Anyone ever send a poke? Come on. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's been a long time. If you send me a poke now, I will not... Yeah, that was annoying. How annoying that poke was. I got two pokes this morning, Okay. I got two pokes for you this morning from this passage. Because, yeah, you might say, Aaron, I don't do this. We're all about grace. I think there's two subtle ways that we can do this. Of why we would also have trouble accepting a Titus. There's two subtle ways that we can do this. Two pokes. Okay, we may not force, but we shame. It's the first one. We may not force. Oh, 
we shame. It's hard in the text to ascertain this, but the meaning when it says force, you could also translate it, they, don't, they didn't coerce. They didn't shame him to do something he didn't want to do. Titus here, though, Titus being here as a leader means there's a certain amount of trust they would have had to have in him. He's a leader. This is the same Titus that later became a pastor in, in, on Crete that, that Paul writes to. If you look at the book of Titus, this is him. And I love in that passage when Paul addresses Titus for the first time. He says, Titus, you are my true child in this common faith. We don't have the same upbringing. You didn't become a Jew like I did, but we have a common faith. But I got to put myself in the shoes of Peter, James, and John. Here's, come, here's, here's someone coming into, my, into our midst did not have the same upbringing, that doesn't look like me, and I already feel threatened by the prevailing culture, be like, what are, our heritage is being threatened here. I got to put myself in their shoes. See, Titus, we're not going to force you, but we're not going to treat you like as if you would have. Now, we may not force, but we can still certainly demean you. Because internally, we believe that they're still wrong and there's distrust. You know what I'm talking about? We can still have a Christian hierarchy. We don't force anyone, but we still have a Christian hierarchy that this is. Okay, you can still be a Christian, but you're kind of a lower level Christian. You got to look this way, act this way, you got to do these things in order to be high-level Christian, right? So we may not force, we certainly do shame. Here's the deal. We all, we, I mean, especially, I, I can't put your, I'll admit, I assume my way is still best. Everyone should do what I do, right? And if you don't, I'll say, Hey, you know what? You don't have to, but on the inside, I'm like, you probably should still. Okay? You probably should. I think this happens all the time. We still believe someone could be a Christian, but man, we still believe in a Christian hierarchy. Titus is still a lower level Christian. Doesn't look like we do. Here's the, here's, here's the second one, okay? This is why this was so like, big for, this path, for, for them not to coerce him. Here's the second one. This one might be... This is the big one I want you to focus on. Okay, we don't force, but we disassociate. We don't force, but we disassociate. See, you, circumcision united them for a millennia. Remember, like, this, is, this was distinguished our people from everybody else. We were the chosen people of God. So not only was it how God relates to me, it's how we relate to each other. These are my brothers and sisters. This was the symbol of that. We're united together around this symbol. It meant something much more. 
It was the symbol of who belonged in their group. So not only is this a question of what makes the gospel a gospel, but what is the mark of what makes us Christian? So here's the problem. Okay, we can affirm you. You can be a Christian. Lanny, you can still be a Christian. But I don't have to associate with you. And what happens is, we say they're Christian, but we only associate with the people that look like us anyway. That the, the, that the real value that we have, those are the people we associate with. Our family mark is not the gospel. It's homeschooling. And by the way, if you homeschool, blessings be upon you. I, right? More power to you. But man, I've seen this, where it's like, the association is people that all want, do the same things we do. Because you kind of think that that's where my salvation lies. Our family mark is not the gospel, it's married couples. See, you get nothing else. Here's the challenge. Who we associate with says more about where we believe salvation lies than maybe anything else. Let me say that again. Who we associate with likely says more about where we believe salvation lies than maybe anything else. There is something, though, so beautiful when we put all of those other things behind us. There's a humility in embracing Jesus' work for you so that you embrace all kinds of people. Ironically, Paul calls them the circumcised ones. Did you get this in the passage? What does he call them? False brothers. They're not in our family. Because they they're not united by what? Grace. They don't understand grace. They're false brothers. They rely on their own works. And they try to force others to do the same. It's not the gospel. Paul, in fact, calls it slavery. Yet because of false brothers' secret blood, they slipped and despised our freedom that they might bring us back into slavery. Now, I don't have time to get into everything now because this is such an amazing part of it. It is a theme that's going to continue when we talk about slavery and freedom. Next week, though, you've got to come back because this is where we dig into this strange attraction of self-righteousness, why we always, when we say we're about grace, why we always seem to slip back into self-righteousness, and that next passage is going to point there. Because even these leaders that didn't force them to be circumcised, oh, if you read the next passage, they were still attracted to the idea of self-righteousness. Okay? Next Sunday. And how we are still attracted to self-righteousness. So you got to tune in next week. But Paul says self-righteousness, this is what he defines as slavery. 
when you are relying on your own merit for God's affirmation of your life. Self-righteousness is a willing putting the chains back on my own hands like the people of God, as soon as they went through trial, said, we're going to put the chains back on our own hands. We want to be enslaved again in Egypt. We want to go back. We're prone to do this. At its core, self-righteousness is an unwillingness to give your life over. It's a matter of control. A tight grip where your life is in your own hands. It's determined by you, but also it's on you. Which inevitably leads to a deep-seated insecurity that can manifest, manifest itself in arrogance, comparison, and mostly fear. And Paul calls that slavery. It's on you. See, the gospel, though, is a radical release of control. That's what grace is. It's not on me. It's not about me. It's not in my hands anymore. What time is it? Hey, I got time. I got five minutes. Garrett, come on up now. I got time. I met with Garrett this week for coffee. You can't go into everything, Garrett. You can ask him about it after. Uh, there's a microphone right there. Greg, can you turn on what was Matt's mic? Yeah, the, the one over here. There you go. Okay, Garrett, um, maybe you could say this better. Well, you can say this better than I can. Uh, Garrett, just give a brief, back, brief background because this could go on for a while. <laughs> Garrett has a, a fascinating story about uh, he, him being in the Mormon church. And uh, what, initially, what, initially, what initially attracted you to Mormonism? Uh, I was at a really bad point in my life, and I wanted to change so badly that uh, I saw a very rigid structure, and it became incredibly attractive because it meant I couldn't fall out of line so it was actually the legalism that sucked me into it at the start because I thought oh well if I have all these rules then I won't I won't do these things anymore maybe I should save that for next week because that's going to be fan yeah that's, I can talk that, next week too. yeah 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 I, want, I need you to say that again for next week because that's basically the message um you can't go into everything right now, Garrett, and, and it, there's a long story about, you know, the, the, the turning of mind. I just want you to, what changed, what led you to discovering grace for the first time, and what changed in your life when you discovered grace for the first time? Okay, so fast forwarding over all the really interesting things that I know everyone wants to know about, <laughs> including about like, his experience in Mormonism. Yeah, you should ask him about it, Including all those special handshakes and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so... I was going through a faith crisis partway through, no surprise, and um, I was trying to figure out if I could feel God's presence in other churches. Um, spoiler alert, I, I did. Um, and I kept hearing these messages about grace at church, but that was a concept that I was not taught about as a Mormon. So... I kept hearing about it. I remember going to a church group and saying, like, hey, guys, what's grace? And everyone's kind of like, what? <laughs> um, 
And they tried to explain it to me, but I still didn't get it. It wasn't... I, I can't even remember what it was that really triggered it, but um, hearing these messages over and over again, um, it dawned on me just incredibly, like how sinful I still was despite all of my attempts at living this rigid lifestyle and how I was still deeply envious of people for whatever they had that I didn't have, all of the experiences that other people were having that I wasn't getting, and that living these rules wasn't accomplishing anything. And then I thought about the people that had really hurt me, that had basically broken me to pieces over the those few years as well. And that's when I actually encountered the cross. That's when I actually understood what that forgiveness really was. Um, and it was this incredible moment where the entire burden of the last few years of my life had suddenly been lifted because I realized that not only could I actually be forgiven without having to, you know do all of these rituals get initiated into some weird cult and stuff like that and and try and earn something. It was given to me even though I didn't deserve it. But then what penetrated me even deeper than that was that if knowing all the things that I had done were actually forgiven by accepting that grace, then even the people that I was holding a grudge against you know, people who aren't believers or anything like that, they were still just as worthy of getting that same forgiveness and grace that I was. And that, com that was completely earth-shattering. Um, and I always refer to it as the equalizer among all people because you won't find that anywhere else. We all want to say, oh, we're good people, we're forgiving. But are you forgiving? You have to keep asking yourself these questions, you know. We'll constantly... And constantly say things like, I'll, I wouldn't do this, but then, you know, eventually you're going to do that, or you're, you may not, maybe you don't do that, but you do this instead, and that's the real message of that forgiveness and grace, is that you, you didn't earn it, but neither did the person next to you, but you both get it, no matter what, yeah. no matter whether they're Jewish or Greek. A little awesome. church stuff there. <laughs> Seriously. Thanks. Thanks, Garrett. Uh, yeah, I mean, you are kind of preaching there at the end, so <laughs> thanks. Uh, you see how there's like this letting go, not only of, of accepting forgiveness for yourself for what you've done, but how you, see, uh, how you see people in your life. Even the people that have hurt you. Grace is like, ah. Uh, They can be forgiven too. It is the great equalizer, Garrett. There is no hierarchy. I remember as a kid, uh, it's, worship team, come up. I'm, I'm done. <laughs> I remember as a kid, though, um, you know, we were playing on a playground uh, at John and Given Public School. That's where I went to elementary school. And Okay, so now, now they've got playgrounds that are all made of plastic. This one was made of wood and sharp metal. 
It was awesome. So many tetanus shots from that thing. And uh, it had this, had this, what we called a rainbow. Okay, we called it the rainbow, but it was just green. Basically, it just went from one area to another area, but as a kid, it seemed like a 30-foot fall. It might have been more like a 10-foot fall. A lot of broken arms on that, falling off that thing. Uh, but I remember as a kid uh, thinking that I had now gained enough courage, had enough strength that I could finally make it across this rainbow by like, you know, one hand or the other. And I was, you know, high off the ground. And I'm scared of heights. But I thought I could make it. And I remember getting halfway across and, and I'm holding, and, and I freeze. And I'm holding on tight. You know, I can feel my hands, I'm freaking out. I can feel my hands uh, tightening around it, but they're, they're kind of slipping. And my dad runs over to me, and, you know, he puts his hands around me, not to touch me, but if I, if I fall, he'll catch me, because he wanted to see if I could still go across. And I remember he crying, uh, and my dad's like, Aaron, let go. I've got you. But I remember still holding on to that thing, you know, with as much strength as I, I possibly could. Because the fall seemed so great, and the outcome seemed so severe, that I thought the only way was to continue to hold on. And my dad saying to me, Aaron, just let go. Eventually I did, and of course my dad caught me. You see, our shared experience as Christians, it's not in how hard we hold on. It's in the experience of letting go. That's what being a Christian is. It's not the strength of my grip. It's in the strength of our dad, who's there to catch us, who's telling us, land it, let go. Karen, let go. Aaron, let go. That is the experience that we all share, that binds us together. It's not the strength of our grip, it's the strength of His. God, thank you so much for grace. That is what makes the gospel the gospel. Lord, I pray that as Christians, that we, as we challenge ourselves, in this passage, we are so prone to drift back into self-righteousness. Not just for ourselves, but how we view people. That we may not force, but man, I've shamed people in my life. That we may not force, but man, I have disassociated from people that I thought were worse than me. forgive me. I pray at Restoration Church that this would be our culture. That we wouldn't just be merely counter-cultural. Just to take a look at the world and say, well, we need to be different than that. But that we would have something much greater. That we can look at this gospel of grace and say, that is the culture that we live. And it's grace that's going to be counter-cultural anyway. 
not just from our world, but possibly from our own religion, our own practices. May we let go of what we're holding on to. God, I pray that if there are some in this room who need to let go, we're going to hear a testimony tonight where someone says, let go, I'm a follower of Jesus. I pray today would be the day that they would let go of that bar, not trust in their own grip anymore, but trust in the catch. We love you, God. We pray for this in your name.